Hi, you are listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. So tonight, we're talking about linking abuse and violence of our family members, people and animals, with Haley Glayholt. And she's here, live in the studio. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you doing over there? <laughs> You're all alone. I know, it's a bit awkward, yes. I'm doing well, though, thank you. So thanks for coming on yes. the Sunday night. Thank you for inviting me. We put the heat on for you. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. So in terms of um, yourself, what do you see or find as the uh, challenging things about people? Hmm. That's a very broad question, but I would say the inability or unwillingness of people to see another's perspective or to walk in their shoes. In terms of just everyday kinds of experiences or more specific, because you focus on people going through relationship issues yeah so i mean yes an everyday experience but with regards to mediation i would say i can i can certainly understand being overwhelmed by emotions you know anger and and sadness and things like that but for the sake of moving forward i think trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes uh makes a whole lot of sense right it benefits everyone so but there's some people just not willing to go there you know, people go through their stuff yep. in the world in relation to somebody else, yep. and they're affected and impacted, and then they, you know, whatever, they form opinions and make assumptions and mm-hmm. make judgments, and then, uh, you know, depending on the kind of relationship and how they value that, they're impacted to on a lasting scale, and then sometimes they reach out for a professional to try to assist them, like a mediator. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's definitely one of the benefits of going to mediation, right, is having someone there, someone neutral, to try and encourage you um, gently to take another position, right, to at least see it from their position, because, you know, I can understand even from personal experience, it's difficult to make that shift sometimes, so. Yeah, people just, you know, know, attach their lived experience, and they've been so affected, and they don't they project a lot of their anxiety or concerns or matters that haven't gone well. You know, it's the other person's mm-hmm. fault. Yeah. And many times people are not necessarily cognizant of how they've possibly contributed, not always mm-hmm. intentional, mm-hmm. to the circumstance of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's part of the, the journey that you walk, too, in terms yeah, of your work. It's yeah, it's very true, you know, and I think particularly when there's, you know, kids involved and things like that, that's even sort of it's even more key at those moments to try and see at things from the kids' perspectives, right? Because I think adults get wrapped up in their own sort of bitterness, which again is understandable in so many cases. But um, gosh, where does that get your kids? You know? Well, you know, people get clouded by their own experiences and they don't see through the vision that the possibilities may arise that working with the other person presents itself as yeah. better yeah. than just walking in those silos for sure yeah so how about you share a bit of information about your educational professional background as well um all right it goes a little ways back um i did an undergrad degree at dal in international development and then from there i went to a bit of an unusual degree at tufts university in boston uh doing a master's in animals and public policy uh through the veterinary school that that is a unique uh (laughs) Focus area? I know. I I wasn't sure if I wanted to do... I didn't know what kind of grad degree I wanted, but I knew I wanted to go to grad school. And then I was interning at a place called the Farm Sanctuary in New York State. 
yeah. uh, where they rescue farm animals from livestock auctions and things like that. And a girl there was saying, you know, if I had to do a master's degree, I would do this one. And I was like, oh. So I applied pronto, and yeah. it was amazing. And then from there, I went to Northwestern University in Chicago to do a PhD in religion, ethics, and public life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you've gravitated here? Yes. So then I moved back to Toronto about three years ago and wasn't sure what direction to go after the PhD, but found my way to mediation, and I'm extremely thankful for that. I uh, I love it so far. So So what do you do now as a professional? So now I'm, a, I'm an accredited family mediator in Toronto. Um, so I work with families that are going through divorce or separating. I also do community ma- mediation, like housing mediation, things like that. And I am growing a focus on interfaith couples, couples going through sort of cultural difficulties or religious difficulties in their families and working through those issues. So, What you said, you like animals. You yes. have a, a strong passion for yes. animals. Yes. And that's core to your PhD or your undergrad. Well, it's core to the PhD because in so, my yeah. PhD I studied religion and animals. That was my... Oh, as well. <laughs> yeah, that was my focus. So, It's <laughs> a lot of animals in there. <laughs> I know. So, and so tonight we're going to talk about the connection... Yep. of uh, domestic violence and yep. abuse with regard to animals and people yep. and how people may not necessarily be aware of For or even sure. think yeah. that it's just about people, yeah. though there is a distinct connection amongst the animals in our lives, yeah. the significant animal people mm-hmm. and the adult or human people. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing when I talk to anyone about what we're going to talk about today they are always, it's so common sense, but it's, they've never really kind of formulated it. You know what I mean? So it's like, of course, of course, animals are an important part of this, but it's never been, really been articulated, you know? So it's interesting. So why have you focused your work on dealing with people going through conflict anyways? Mm, um, gosh, I guess that's a good question. I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of deep-seated psychological reason. <laughs> yes, and we're doing actually a on-air evaluation <laughs> and assessment it. of you. Yes. And so we encourage callers to, or people to call in and actually give an assessment of you. Armchair diagnosis. Not really, yes. but nevertheless. Well, I'd be interested either way, but yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's just, honestly, it's it's sort of my personality. I come from a family that is fairly high conflict, and it's just sort of the role I feel I went into in my family was trying to have peace there or make peace I don't know so and it's interesting now that I've come into it as a profession it just makes so much sense and it it doesn't even feel like work because it's just sort of very natural Natural, to who I am which is pretty neat you know how many siblings do you have I have one older brother right yeah so okay so were you sort of the person who was trying to look for ways or options in the family or yeah I mean I think so um yeah I think that's I think I think that's pretty true. Yeah. I think I am very uncomfortable around uh, conflict and fighting and things like that, which is kind of funny because now I choose to put myself in situations of conflict, but it's different when it's not your own, right? Right. So, So, you know, you're working to assist others who are experiencing this. Yeah. Though you're using your own lived experiences when you were younger as a template to help assist others. Yeah. So... You know, your empathy with the lived experience yeah. can be highly invaluable with regard to appreciating other people's experiences. I think that's so true. And also having been through divorce myself, like I think I know the pain these people are going through. It's just the most traumatizing, horrendous thing, you know, and 
and being at family court, it's just, it's interesting because I've been there and I know like the horror, you know, so being able to kind of not hold hands, but just talk to people and say like, this is how it's going to go. This is what to expect. And, you know, you'll get through it. It's just, it's amazing. Well, I, I think through the words that we communicate and the way we frame that, mm-hmm. the people that we're communicating with about that, they can feel the sense of yeah. compassion and care that is resonating through your framing of that and yeah. how you present yourself. Yeah. And I think from that kind of approach, there's a higher probability that people will actually listen to what you're saying mm-hmm. and trying to assist true. them with. Yeah. So how, how does violence and abuse contribute to conflict in a relationship? I know that's a... Mm-hmm. And and you even did a post or something that said, hey, this is a heavy topic. Yeah, it is heavy, very. The thing is, I think for, and one of the purposes of this program is to have those conversations that people may not necessarily feel comfortable mm-hmm. having. So having those difficult conversations. Yeah. Because ultimately the idea is to help create some positive change. Absolutely, yeah. So I don't know if I'd say that animal abuse, well, no, it does contribute to fa- family violence. I guess sort of the root I'm coming at this from is that it's a major factor in family violence. So it's part and parcel to what family violence is. So um, when we think of domestic violence and child abuse and elder abuse, we tend to think of those kind of as separate um, occurrences, right? And then if we bring animal abuse into the picture, if we try and sort of understand that if the child is being abused, chances are the dog is also being abused. If the wife is being abused, chances are, you know, the kid or, or the older grandma living there is also being abused. So it's really a matter of kind of reframing how we see family violence, right? Because the family includes pets. And, and yeah. Yeah, all so members of the family. It's not exactly. just, quote, the human members. Exactly. It's those significant animals that we, you know, engage as part of our family unit. Right. Yeah, and I think that it's important to to notice the animals because if you don't, you're missing a huge part of how domestic violence plays out, right? Because abusers use animals as part of their power and control sort of campaign, right? And if you don't see that and if you don't don't make accommodations for that, you're not able to help families and survivors of domestic violence in, in sort of a complete, in a complete way. So I would ask, what are the different ways that people exhibit violence in a relationship? That's a really good question. Um, generally, I mean, there's, there's multiple different ways, but there's physical violence, emotional abuse, uh, sexual abuse, and sometimes often people forget about financial abuse, which is one of the major ways that um, an abuser can control um, and exert control over uh, his victim. So there's there's different sort of ways of looking at this, but generally if you just do a Google search for power and control wheel, it will show you the sort of many ways that violence can play out uh, in families. And, and um, it's important to remember that pets are also a part of that violence, right? So just as a human can be um, physically assaulted uh, or sexually assaulted, so can a pet. And emotional abuse is um, just as sort of sneaky and awful uh, and used as a way of controlling women uh, when it's done against a pet, right? So screaming at, threatening the pet, things like that. Um, abusers use that as a way to control the human members of the family. So. And I would think, too, that when people do abuse the humans and the animals are in the area, yeah. they're also going to be 
affected by. Yeah. You know, I know I have a an animal, mm-hmm. a couple animals, mm-hmm. and I know if I raise my voice a certain way, my dog will have a different kind of than if I say it softer. Yeah, it's so true, you know, and oftentimes they'll try and get in the middle of it, right, and try and sort things out. When I was growing up, we had a Newfoundland named Julie, (laughs) and whenever, even if I was jokingly fighting with my brother, she would come up in between us, and she was like 180 pounds, so it was a major presence. She would stand in between us, right, as a way to try and break us apart and, like, end the the argument, right? This just brings to mind that maybe we should have animal mediators. (laughs) Well, pet therapy is kind of a version of that, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it does change the dynamic of things, which is cool. Right. So how aware are people who have violent tendencies and behavior of their actions? I mean, mm. people do things, mm-hmm. and they're not always connected to their actions. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to make excuses here. No, yeah. I'm just trying to present people do conscious things, and people do things... No, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Um, I think there's a difference between sort of a spontaneous act of violence or an outburst, something like that. I think there's a difference between that and sort of longstanding intimate partner violence or family violence, right? Because that really is like it's a, camp- a campaign of power and control and it's it's manipulation, right? And abusers are very smart. They know exactly how to control the person that they're trying to control, right? And and, and again, pets are brought into that. So there's, an, there's a researcher at University of Windsor called Amy Fitzgerald. Um, she gave a fantastic talk at a conference I was at last week. Um, it was the first Canadian link conference, which is what this topic is. And she was essentially showing that abusers know if a woman cares about her pet. And if they know that the pet is a valuable a significant entity, yeah, part of their... If there's a tight relationship there, yeah. the abuser will abuse the animal, right, to get the woman under control. But if the woman doesn't care about the animal, the animal often doesn't get abused because he knows that. And I'm saying he because, you know... The, the preponderance yeah. of people who do abuse, yeah. though not solely... yeah. Are males. And the lethality, like the, mm-hmm. uh, depending, you know, how far it goes to death or murder tends to be men on women, right? right. So, okay. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. It's, it's, I mean, I would argue that perpetrators of domestic violence are very conscious of what they're doing. Um, it's, it's a plan, you know? So it's a deliberate act. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And you've mentioned a few times about the power control. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily. The violence is used as a means to yeah. control, to get somebody to do something that they normally wouldn't do mm-hmm. for the benefit of the person who's trying to exert that kind of control exactly. or power yeah. or not to do something exactly. that they normally would do. Yeah. Right? yeah. So what contributes to people's violent behavior? I mean, that's a that's sort of a tough one to answer, right? Because I think it's sort of... It depends on the person, right? What what stressors get in the way, whether it's, you know, drug or alcohol abuse, economic stressors, family stress, mental health. I mean, domestic violence is it's it's everywhere, right? It's any income in any family, any neighborhood, any ethnicity, it's everywhere. So, I mean, that's difficult to answer because it's kind of like whatever stressors exist could be used as a reason to... Well, that is a response. You've made an answer yeah. that I feel is helpful to understand yeah. that it's not exclusive to any one kind oh, not of at all. culture, group, no. dimension, dem- demographic. No. It no. crosses... And sexuality. I mean, heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter. It's everywhere. Unfortunately, it is everywhere. 
Yeah, so it's right. part of the everyday lived experience, yeah. though not everybody who goes through lived experiences experiences also right. the violence and abuse. Exactly, yeah. So, so what's the link? Mm, so the link is this idea of the link between domestic violence, child abuse, animal abuse, and elder right. abuse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in essence saying that uh, when you see one, it's usually the tip of the iceberg. So when you see one of those forms of abuse, there's the others are usually present. Though, you know, how do people necessarily get aware that there is this link? Because, mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier in the program, mm -hmm. that people, there's this act of an adult getting hurt and maybe also an act of an animal getting mm -hmm. hurt, but people don't draw the connection or the link totally. amongst the two. Yeah, so, I mean, in the beginning you said the word uh, silos came up, and that's exactly what... I mean, so, okay, so let me go back a second. The organization, a nonprofit that I founded with a friend of mine, Yvonne, uh, is called Link Coalition Toronto. Uh, and essentially what our mission is, is to get people educated about what this link is, right, that it exists. And when it comes to these silos, it's to do trainings sort of across silos. So for Children's Aid Society, for example, training Children's Aid Society to look for animal abuse uh, and training uh, domestic violence sort of shelter workers to look for, I mean, they do look for child abuse, but to look for animal abuse and elder abuse. Um, and it's really interesting because a few weeks ago I spoke at Peel Family Mediation Services. They had a domestic violence symposium. Right. And one of the organizers came up to me after and said, uh, I did a presentation there, and she said, uh, I just had three Children's Aid Society's workers come up to me and say that usually the first thing they do is get the people to send the dog or cat into the back room so it doesn't bug them. And they were like, okay, so now we're going to get the animal to come in because if the dog is, like, looking emaciated or has a broken leg or something, if the parents are claiming that the kid's okay, it's very unlikely, right? It's very unlikely if the animal is in sort of horrible shape and has been abused, chances are that's extending to the children as well. Or if the child is not exhibiting anything outwardly, mm -hmm. though by visualizing yeah. the animal, yeah. you can maybe see a clue yeah. as to what actually is happening, which might be also a clue to what could end up happening. Well, that's such a good point, right? Because... I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's traumatic for a child to hear an animal being abused, right? It's traumatic for most people to hear an animal crying out in pain and to hear someone torturing an animal, right? So even if the kid physically looks fine, they've been privy to this horror going on in their house, right? So, and I think you're, you're exactly right that it's often, um, uh, what's that expression, like a canary in the mine shaft, right? If the pet is being abused, it's going to escalate towards humans soon. That, I mean, isn't the uh, idea that when there's abuse or power and control that it usually reaches out first to the most vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. And that could be seen as the animal friend in the family. Yeah. And then gravitate to children. Right. And then thus then, if that doesn't work enough for the person, right. they gravitate to the adults in the relationship. Yeah, and it's interesting because this woman, um, Amy Fitzgerald, uh, who did this fantastic research in Canada, she surveyed a number of shelters throughout Canada uh, and, and saw that the more severe and frequent the abuse was to the animal, the more frequent and severe it was to the woman as well. So these things kind of go hand in hand, right? As they escalate for either side, human or animal, they escalate everywhere, which is sad. 
tragic. True. Yeah, tragic. True. Un- unfortunately, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think it's critical for us to have this conversation yeah. and try to draw the link right. uh, or bring awareness for people to be aware of yeah. the connection that does happen and has been happening right. for an eon number of years Right. that, I don't know, to date, maybe research hasn't, there hasn't been enough research to, mm-hmm. quote, validate it. Mm-hmm. And maybe only sometimes people only um, get it gets credibility when there's quotes research on it. Mm-hmm. Yet it's a lived experience that's been happening. Yeah, and I mean, as you see all these horrific stories about school shootings and insane things going on in the states and and elsewhere and elsewhere, one of the main sort of things in the background is there tends to be animal abuse and domestic violence. I mean, so. It, you know, whether or not people take it seriously for human's sake or for animals' sake, it's important to take it seriously. I'm just going to say, hey, we don't have the elf here tonight. Hope the elf feels better. You know, it's the holiday season. This is where the elf first started, actually, a couple of years ago when she came through the window. <laughs> and so that's not an animal. That's an actual person. <laughs> so, elf, if you're listening, Hello. So in terms of tonight, we're talking with uh, Haley Gleeholt and uh, talking about the connection or the link of domestic violence or violence and abuse with regard to humans and their animals. What are the things actually that stimulate a person to end up abusing their animal? Hmm, um, are there clues or cues that sort of put people in a place that, you know, you could sort of say, hmm, that person's prone to do this or not? I mean, I, I hmm, that's a really good question. I feel like it's more of a, I, I feel like I would need to be kind of a psychologist, psychiatrist to know where that comes from. I mean, I, one thing I do know, though, is that if you see it in your household growing up, you're much likelier to um, have that behavior when you're an adult, right? So um, kids that grow up in families with domestic violence or um, animal abuse, are much higher, much more likely to um, exhibit those behaviors in their own relationships, in their own lives when they're older. So um, that's certainly one aspect. But as for the kind of psychological or emotional aspects, I can't really... Or behavioral things. Yeah, I mean, I feel... I don't know really if I'm comfortable speaking on that because I feel like it's not really my area. Um, But yeah. So not every, obviously, animal or in a family is abused. Mm -hmm. And not obviously every family has abuse in it. Mm-hmm. Some are because of certain circumstances, mm-hmm. and it happens. It's a reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to educate and inform mm-hmm. the listeners, for one, about others who might be going through that is significant in their lives to help right. support them. Right. I mean, that's one of the purposes of trying to bring to light these kinds of topics. Absolutely. So yeah. that people can, you know whether it's happening in their own lives or some, they know of somebody else. So, hey, reach out and help somebody else. Right, because absolutely. I think it's critical when people are going through lived experiences that are not healthy and productive that they know they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's such a good point because a lot of people are, a lot of women, I'll say, because women tend to use domestic violence shelters more so than men um a lot of women are hesitant to say that the pet my pet is the reason i'm not leaving this relationship because they feel like that won't be taken seriously right because essentially they feel like someone's going to say to them you know it's a pet just leave like if you can't take your pet with you leave anyways but but it's and then so that's like 
adding to their shame, right? There, there's already shame there because they're within a situation of domestic violence. And then there's further shame added because people are diminishing this relationship they have with their pet when their pet is like their lifeline most a lot of the time, right? The emotional comfort we get from animals is, is profound, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's even more difficult for a woman to leave if she has someone saying to her, it's ridiculous that you're not leaving because of your pet. Um, yeah. And not everybody who has a pet has a child, too. Because, exactly. quote, the pet is their child. Well, that's actually such a good point because statistics show that for people who don't have children, those people are even less likely to leave their abuser if they can't take their pet with them, right? Because these, these animals are, are like surrogates, essentially, for a child, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah. there's a, there's obviously a number of shelters yes. for people to... Yes find safety in yes. when they're trying to leave a relationship that is so abusive and violent in some form. Mm-hmm. How many of these shelters, which are predominantly only for females, mm-hmm. have any access or ability for people to bring their pets with them? Well, that's, uh, that's sort of hitting the nail on the head there is that in Toronto, well, okay, in most, there's no, uh, there's no facility for animals, right? There's no ability to take pets in with the women or with the children when they come into a shelter. Um, in Toronto, I believe there's two homeless shelters, a Fred Victor and I think Sistering, which take pets for homeless people. Um, but with regards to domestic violence, no shelters in Toronto do. So that's why we've established the Safe Pet Program through Link Coalition Toronto. So this is our first major initiative. And what we've done is we're setting up a fostering system for pets so that women can go to shelters and have those pets taken care of while they're in the shelter. So how would that work? Um, so there's sort of there's different ways to do it. Some shelters, we're kind of basing this off what's going on in the States. So some shelters have on-site kind of boarding facilities, which is fantastic because then the women and children can interact with the animal and get that emotional support, right? But some shelters aren't able to do that for a variety of reasons. So Another alternative is to have short-term fostering, so linking up with like a humane society or something that can hold on to the pet for a few weeks while the woman finds somewhere else to put the pet more for longer term while she stays in the shelter. And then right. our method is using fosters to hold on to the pet for, gosh, between sort of four and six or eight months the entire time the woman's at the domestic violence shelter. And when she leaves the shelter, we reunite her with her pet, and then they go on. So when you say foster, it's like with kids. Yeah. And, you know, there's foster parents. Yeah. And so they've been vetted. Yeah. Gone through a process that's determined they're okay to take responsibility for a child that has been apprehended, for example, from a family. Yeah. And so how would you vet somebody for a pet? Oh, gosh, we have like a billion question (laughs) questionnaire. Um, yeah, so we have many, many questions we ask. We talk to their vet uh, to see what their vet can tell us about how they have taken care of their animals in the past. We do a police records check. Um, it's fairly major um, because, well, obviously there's a lot of legal issues, but also this animal has been through enough, and the woman is trusting us to take care of her pet while Link Toronto has it. So uh, we go through quite a, a vigorous uh, screening before accepting them as a foster. Yeah, I know someone from working at the court mm. who works for one of the children's aid societies mm. that also is involved in her personal life with animal rescue. Oh, neat, yeah. Getting 
getting animals from Greece, for example, oh, yeah. and bringing them over. And I know from talking with her, there's this whole process of, quote, vetting people yeah. to become the new parents yeah. for the rescued animals. Yeah. And how critical that is. It's huge. Because you can't just... The animals have obviously suffered, and that's where they're trying to get from that unsafe space and mm-hmm. place to a better place. Mm-hmm. And you don't want them to be re-victimized. No, exactly. It's so true. Yeah, and you, and you want the woman who's staying at the shelter and the children who are staying there to be able to not worry about their animal while they're taking care of themselves, right? They're getting back on their feet. They're trying to find housing and everything, and it's you want them to know that, you know, your pet's cool, everything's good, um, get your life sorted, and then, you know, the pet comes back, and it's great. Right, so if they know that there's a, a safety net for yeah. their animal friend, yeah. that they can then transition to put their mindset yeah. to get a transition from where they weren't safe right. as adults and also if there's children to a better place as transition. Right. So how though does it impact people's decision making when they're going through mm. these issues of violence and abuse at home yeah. and they have an animal? Yeah. How does that impact knowing that they a lot of there's no shelters for them that's it's hugely significant so again going back to this um, woman's research amy fitzgerald at windsor um she did this fantastic research in canada fairly recently um and she was able to show that well first of all so in for women who are at shelters if they had pets uh, in their home uh, 89% of those pets had been abused so 89% of the time the abuser will abuse the pets as well and two-thirds of these women said that animal mistreatment or animal abuse had a strong impact on their decision to leave their abuser. And also, sort of shockingly, 56% of these women said that, said that they delayed leaving due to fear for their pet's safety. And then one more statistic, not to bore you, but 47% of these women said they were likely, or ext- it was likely or extremely likely that they would have left earlier if they could have, could have taken their pets with them. So 47% of women, I mean, that's huge, right? Because it's it's hard enough for women to make the decision to leave. And then for 47% of them, that decision could have come sooner had they known there was something somewhere for their pet, right? So it's, I mean, again, it's interesting talking to people about this and talking to sh- domestic violence shelters in Toronto because they know it's an issue, but they don't really have the resources to get a handle on it just yet, right? So I feel like, Link Coalition Toronto is kind of stepping into a bit of a, a hole there, right? Because um, a, a vacuum or a gap. Yeah, we're form. filling that gap, right? Which is what I w- would also challenge back that maybe the traditional domestic violence professional worker mm-hmm. hasn't also been necessarily connecting the link yeah. of the animal and the significance of that animal in that person's life yeah. and the abuse that the person's going through. And the decisions they make and don't make as part of leaving that relationship that's abusive. You know, when we do intakes and we hear of people going through situations Mm -hmm. and we say, a rational person, you would leave. Yeah. Why don't you leave? Yeah. There's so many backstories. Oh, my gosh. I know. And I feel like that's sort of that million-dollar question that tends to get thrown out for survivors of domestic violence. Why didn't you just leave? And it's just life is not that simple, right? And it's and then you add a pet into the mix that they're deeply bonded with and that's being used to control them, right? The guy is saying, I'm going to kill this dog if you leave. Uh, or if she leaves the dog behind, you know, 
the guy says, you know, if you don't come back, I'm going to send you a picture on your cell phone of the dog being tortured, you know, and that's real. And that happens all the time. So if we're working with families and we're trying to serve and help families, you need to look at the whole family. I mean, it's it's just there's no other way to do it, I feel. you know. So it's not just educating the public at large. It's also uh, educating the professionals yeah. who work with people going through. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge, right? And when I was at this conference last week, uh, the woman that I'm working with, Yvonne, who founded this with me, she was she essentially said we should give um, talks at domestic violence shelters, and it like hadn't even occurred to me, but I was like, yes, of course, you know? Yeah. It's not just like police and CAS and things like that and social workers that we should talk to. It's domestic violence shelters in addition to the ones we're working with, but across the board right yeah to tra- so, transform their yeah. traditional approach yeah and the resources they provide to yeah. women exactly and children exactly who are going through these to also accommodate for the capacity of bringing the the pet or the animal into this yeah and i think that ultimately the goal would be for link coalition toronto to as part of our fundraising to raise funds with shelters to sort of co-fundraise so they can open some sort of boarding facility on site so they can have the animals on site at the shelter rather than through fosters. So, But that's kind of a, a future goal, but it's it's pretty exciting. To well, I would direction. think, too, it's to also educate the people or the institutions or the organizations mm-hmm. that fund shelters mm-hmm. that, hey, oh my gosh, this is completely. a reality. Completely. That, hey, not only give money, yeah. this is a... a a real lived experience. Right. And so if you're really looking to address and support people Mm -hmm. to transition from an unsafe to, quote, a safe or a better place, that we need to get holistic with the whole perspective of what's going on. Yeah, and I really like that you're saying lived experience because that's exactly it, right? We can't force onto people what we think healing and shelter should look like, right? We need to, again, it's like walking in their shoes. We need to try and look through their eyes and say, like, what matters to you? And why didn't you, why can't you leave? What's holding you back from leaving? How can I make that easier on you, right? And pets are a massive reason. I mean, and and thankfully, this woman has done the research to prove it, right, with the statistics. So, so yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's major. So, you know, there's obviously a growth or development in terms of the education that needs to happen mm-hmm. as part of this whole uh, perspectives. I just want to ask, at what point does a person who is abusive shift their attention from an animal mm. to a person? Yeah, so that's that's pretty tricky, I guess, because it would be, I'm sure it's sort of unique to every situation, but mm-hmm. I think certainly from what I know about domestic violence, that the abuser keeps upping the ante, right? So when you know, he's been, you know, kicking the cat and, and eventually sort of that doesn't control the woman. Or, or doesn't the, create the outcome that he's hoping exactly, for Exactly. Right? Doesn't get his his wife or his child to do what he wants. He'll up the ante a bit, right? And, and can kill the pet or can start abusing the child, abusing the wife, things like that. So it's just the escalation is just as more power and control is needed by him or wanted by him, it escalates. So. Okay. Yeah. You know, you do this work, you have a passion, obviously, for it. There's a passion for the different dimensions of people's lived experience, in addition to the animals that form part of that lived experience. Mm -hmm. How are you affected by the work you do? Um, It's, I mean, it can certainly be hard, right? I think that uh, I wouldn't want to compare it to people who are sort of on the front lines, like 
um, you know, like victim services and, and people at CAS who are investigating abuse. I mean, I feel like it's certainly not that level of intensity for me because I'm sort of a step removed. It's a lot to take. I mean, it really is, right? Um, at that conference last week, it was completely fantastic, but it was kind of an onslaught of, you know, how to identify child abuse and how to identify animal abuse and, you know, all these sort of horrifying stories and statistics and such. But so, you know, it, it, you can get pretty low. Ultimately, I find, you know, starting Link Coalition Toronto energized me because I'm just so excited to be doing something for people and for Toronto and for animals. And so, yeah, it's just really energizing saying, okay, it's total, you know, crap, but like we're doing something about it. So who talks that nonsense? Go on. <laughs> I was going to say something worse, but really? I remember our oh. discussion. Oh yeah. We had a conversation before going on air <laughs> that you were going to reframe that. So it is, it <laughs> is bad, but at least we're doing something about it. And, also, I have I have a dog, and she's sort of my whole everything. So hanging out with her and taking care of her, it's like, you know, at least you can make this one life. I can make her life better, and that is rewarding, right? It, it keeps you going. So. Okay, I see we're getting a caller, but I, it look it's a one eight seven seven number. Oh, that can't be real. Yeah, that can't. Be, that, they're probably trying to sell us like a timeshare in Florida. And I'm not buying or what they're selling. Or up north uh-uh. or something. No. So I'm I'm not going to answer ignore that it. one. Yeah, I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> I'm going to focus on you. <laughs> okay. So what can you tell us more about share the you know the initiative that you provided? Yeah. Why did you do this? Um hmm. Uh it's something I had been wanting to do for ever since that master's degree. So that was like what 15 years ago or something or longer, I don't know. Uh that's when I first learned about it and it kind of planted the seed. And when I was in Chicago, I volunteered at the Chicago Metropolitan Battered Women's Network to learn about domestic violence and learn about what they do. And I also sort of gave some assistance to uh, this woman, Jessica, who was starting a safe haven for pets program in Chicago. So it was all kind of like fermenting. And then I got back to Toronto, kind of regrouped for a few years. And then I had this moment where I was just... (laughs) feeling pretty low about life and my job and everything and I was just like that's it you know I'm doing this like and it energized me I was just like you know guns blazing at that point so yeah so it gave you a sense of purpose it did it absolutely did yeah and now you build upon that yeah now you really got you know I think you have to keep challenging yourself because you reach certain goals right and then what's next yeah so you got to keep pressuring yourself and be critical to because you know in order to get effective and meaningful change, positive change, mm-hmm. it takes a, a, you know, a real period of time. It's so true. People struggle with change anyways. It's so true. Yeah. And I'm, it's like kind of slow and steady wins the race. Right. And originally I didn't, I, I sort of mediation and then this link Toronto thing were two kind of separate entities, but it's interesting over the past few months how they've kind of come together. It's, it's pretty neat. They're informing each other and it's all sort of working. So there's less sort of, <laughs> cognitive dissonance in my head right it's all kind of melding which i like you know i mean the clarity is becoming even clearer yeah totally yeah it's cool so what are the things that you would suggest or like to see changed or created to better deal with Mm. the link of violence toward animals and people well oh gosh i feel like there's so many answers to that i think the first one would be educating about it right just letting people know like getting it on their radar uh, which is something that Link Toronto is doing. We're doing different talks at different places, and we're going to contact the Toronto police and stuff to educate them about this. 
and certainly um, getting programs at domestic violence shelters that have ways to take care of animals for people staying there uh, is huge. And we've started that with Interval House in Toronto, which is a fantastic domestic violence shelter. Um, we're starting with them, and we're going to grow to different shelters in Toronto. And it was interesting. One of the things that came up at this conference was that um, this Amy Fitzgerald did a survey of different websites of shelters, of domestic violence shelters, and almost none of them had anything to say about what to do with your pets, which is, again, going back to the lived experience thing. I mean, you know, if I was on a website looking for help and there was no mention of what I'm supposed to do with my pet, I'd kind of back away and be like, well, I guess I'm stuck, right? Yeah, Unless that I would can... obviously contribute to your decision of what to exactly. do and what not to do. Exactly. So I think one step then is just getting domestic violence shelters and Children's Aid Society and things like that, victim services, to have something on their website just saying, we know your pets are important to you, we understand that bond, and here are some suggestions or some programs you can use to protect them while you're protecting yourself, right? So how can people assist and support those who are experiencing the violence and abuse and also their animals? Yeah, I think, again, knowing that this human-animal bond is so important and significant, just what's the word I'm looking for? like honoring that in a way, right? Not making people feel ashamed because they're not leaving their abuser because they can't take their pet. Like understanding well, that be, that's real, yeah, right? Being respectful. Exactly, yeah. And gosh, just being there for people and listening. And certainly, I mean, Link Coalition Toronto is always looking for volunteers and donations and uh, fosters for the pets and things like that. So uh, do you mind if I say our website? Well, I was yeah. going to just say, put <laughs> the shout out. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's www.linktoronto.org. And, uh, That's L-I-N-K? Yeah, Link Toronto, all one word, and then .org. And uh, just check it out, and there's different ways to um, get involved. But certainly, I mean, donations are always hugely valuable. So, yeah. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So is there anything in terms of before we just part? that uh, people can do to better inform themselves uh, about the issues? Yeah, so again, our website has a pretty decent section on resources and things like that. Also, I would say if they could look up, there's something called the National Link Coalition in the States, and they have a ton of resources for every different profession, things like that, um, just for families, for everything, just stuff to read and, and learn about it, right? Uh, and the more you know, like the better you can help people, so... Have you created a brochure? Or, yeah. Uh, we have sort of postcards that uh, advertise our safe pet program, and then on the other side, the link between these types of abuse. Right. Other than that, our website's the primary way of getting information right now. Are you looking for volunteers too? Yeah, we can always take volunteers. My goodness, yes, volunteers, fosters, gosh, anything. People to you know be ambassadors in some way to oh, go out sure. into the community and help promote and educate yeah, I awareness. Think that's, um, that's huge, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, And certainly, I mean, anyone who's listening to this who wants us to come talk to an organization or a school or anything. So put that uh, contact info again? Yeah, so just send us an email. It's info, I-N-F-O, at linktoronto.org. And uh, you can also just go to our website or Facebook, and we're there too. Okay. Yeah. So I want to thank you very much for our... Uh, focus conversation today on this really critical piece with regard to people's lived experiences that are not necessarily positive or yeah. productive. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This was really exciting, and I'm glad to get the word out, you know? Yeah, and I'm glad you reframed that other word, too, 
that you were <laughs> going to use. I'm glad I bleeped myself. Yeah. Well, self-awareness is really important <laughs> in our profession. I'm working on it. My horrendous yeah. trucker mouth. Well, yes. maybe you can come come back again and we can revisit this and see where you're at and progressing. <laughs> my self-growth journey. All right. You've been, uh, thanks very much, Haley. Awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA 1610 AM, Voces Latinas. Thank you.